have your Bible, we're going to be in Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. Um, so while you're turning there, many of us are familiar with the Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know? Um, so throughout the song, the way it's structured is, it's like we're asking questions of Mary. Mary, did you know all that your son would become, like everything that Jesus would do? Now, I imagine that when anyone has a child, this is something they wonder. They wonder, like, who will they become? Will they be like me? Will they be like their mother? Will they um, like sports? Will they be funny? I don't know. Will they be smart? See, these are things that we wonder. And so throughout this song, this is what it's getting at. Now, I don't want to bash the song too much because I know a lot of people who really like the song, really look forward to the Christmas season when they can listen to Pentatonix, Mary, Did You Know? But there's, there's one section where it says this, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? Now, for all the other questions, the answer is no. For all the other questions, Mary, did you know that your son would someday walk on water? No, there's no way she could have known that. But for these three questions, the answer is yes. She did know that her son would be the God of the universe, that he would be the king of everything, that he would be the savior of the world. How did she know that? Because the angel came and explicitly told her. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. So read along with me. Um, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son who you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, we all love receiving gifts, right? Like, I think it's in human nature to want to get presents. But there's one part of receiving presents that is absolute torture. And that's the anticipation, right? Like, the anticipation of what we might get and not being able to get it is absolute torture. I mean, I can think of when I was a kid, whenever the first present with my name hit the tree. I was measuring it. Is it the same size as the toy that I wanted? I'm shaking it. I'm, I'm ripping off little pieces of the paper to see if I can like read maybe the instructions of what the toy might be so I can know what is this. But what makes the, tor- what makes the anticipation so much worse is when someone says, you're going to love it. It's going to be such an awesome gift. Anytime someone says that, you're ready to just throw caution to the wind. I don't care when Christmas is. I don't care that it's November. I'm, hit, I'm, I'm opening this present right now, right? Because we, the anxious anticipation of what this might be has become joyful anticipation. We know we're going to love it. And that's exactly what the angel is doing here with Mary. Now, starting next Sunday, churches all over the world will be celebrating Advent. So Advent is the time of preparation 
for the celebration of the birth of Christ. It's a joyfully expectant time surrounding the birth of the Savior. So now Mary here is experiencing the first advent. And the angel's coming to her and saying, the child that you're about to give birth to is not just any child. No, just like the present that someone tells us we're going to love, he's, saying, he's coming to her and he's saying, this, this baby is going to be great. He is not just going to be any mere man. He is going to be great. And so this is what I want us to talk about today. This is what I want us to see and what the angel is telling to Mary. I want us to see that Jesus is the world's God, that he is the king, and that he is the savior of the world, and that we must respond to him as such. So first, he is God. So look at verse 32. He will be, call, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Now consider what this must mean for the Jewish people. So the Jewish people were the chosen ones of God. They were the chosen race of God. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He fed them with manna during their time in the wilderness. He dwelt among them in a tent in their, in their camp, right? And then he fights for them in the promised land. Uh, so the Jewish people, the chosen one, uh, the chosen people of God, are completely rebellious towards the Lord throughout this entire time, but yet the Lord remains committed to them. However, at one point, the Lord sends them into exile for seven years, but the Lord doesn't simply abandon them in their exile. No, the Lord recalls them from their exile, brings them back to Jerusalem, and then the Jewish people build a temple. And while God had previously dwelt in the temple before their exile, now the temple was completely empty. The Jewish people felt like they were alone and that God had abandoned them. Now, between the time the Old Testament drops off in Malachi, where we see the temple is empty and the Israeli people feel completely hopeless, between that time and the birth of Jesus here in Luke, God is silent. We don't see anything from God during that time. He was silent. They feel abandoned, but they do have one hope. The Jewish people the whole time are holding on to one hope, and that is that the long-foretold Messiah would be coming. In Genesis 3, right after sin enters the world, we read, I will put enemy between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is saying right from the beginning, right when sin entered the world, God is saying that I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send someone who is going to crush the head of the serpent. I'm go- he's going to crush sin. And so when the angel is coming to Mary here, she knows what this means. The angel is coming to her and saying, this is who's coming into the world. The Messiah, the Son of God, is coming into the world. Look here in Matthew 1, 23. It points to the prophecy of Isaiah, thousand, uh, hundreds of years before, and he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Don't miss this. Which means God with us. Which means God with us. This is not simply a wise teacher. This is not a military leader. No, this is God himself. God in the flesh coming into the world. Now, all throughout human history, we see singular moments in history where, like, one great person just affected great change. Uh, Alexander the Great conquered large parts of the known world. Uh, Martin Luther sparks the Protestant Reformation. George Washington founds America. Tom Brady wins Super Bowls, like, all the time. All throughout all of these, there's, there's this one person who's causing great change. But all of these completely pale in comparison when we consider that at this moment, at the birth of Christ, the God of the universe is breaking into human history at this moment. Now, I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard, right? I, I, would, I would venture to guess that everyone in here at least knows that Christians believe 
that Jesus is God, that he is, that he is God in the flesh. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But what difference does it make? What difference does it make? And here it is. It means that you can trust him. It means whatever he says, you can take it to the bank. Now, all throughout the Christmas season, it's, it's a joyful, expectant time of the birth of Christ. But for a lot of people, and I would venture to guess a lot of people in this room, it's also a painful time because mixed with all the joy of family coming together, there's also this feeling that, that there's someone not here, that, that mixed with the joy is also this, this depression about that death exists. And we're thinking about not simply who is here, but we're thinking about who isn't here. And, and in this time, we may turn to verses, uh, in our sadness, we may turn to a verse like Matthew 5, 4 that says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Or in our intense, intense anxiousness over the future, we may turn to Matthew six thirty three. that says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Or being burdened by the season and the sadness of the season, we may turn to Jesus' teaching when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now these words have comforted so many people over the years, and, and I'm sure they've comforted all of us during tough times. But the thing is, is if Jesus is not God, then these words are just empty words. They're, they're simply just platitudes. They're, 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 they're nice words, comforting words for comforting words' sake. Everyone, atheists, believers alike, agree that Jesus is a great moral teacher. That, that everything he says is great and moral. But if he is not God, then his words have no authority. It means that, so when we, when we see that Jesus is God, it means that when he says that I'm going to give you peace and I'm going to give you rest, that he's actually going to do it. He's not simply saying it for, for peace's sake. He's going to give you rest because he himself is rest and he himself is peace. The deity of Christ, him being God, and the humanity of Christ, him being man, should give us the utmost comfort. No one knows loss like Jesus. He existed in perfect fellowship with the Father, the perfect fellowship with the, with the Spirit before coming to earth, before dying on the cross. No one knows sorrow like Jesus as we see him crying multiple times, as we see him uh, be crucified on the cross. Isaiah calls him a man of sorrow. No one knows sorrow and loss like Jesus. And in your sorrow from the loss of a loved one, in your sorrow over disease, in your, so- in your anxiousness over the future, you can turn to the words of Jesus and you can take him to the bank. You can see that he's not simply just giving you a comforting word. He's actually giving you comfort because he's giving you himself. This is how Jesus, so whenever we, when we see a child, whenever they're scared, and they, and they run into the arms of their father, and they, they jump into their arms, they're not simply running to the arms of their father because they're saying, I, I just need peace, I just need rest, I need the gifts you're giving me. No, they run to their father's arms because to them, their father is peace. To them, their father is comfort. He is security, and they're saying that no matter what comes, that my father can beat up whatever I'm scared of. And this is how Jesus is rest for us. Now, I'm just touching one of the many implications of Jesus being God. There is literally thousands of implications for this. But this is what I don't want you to miss, is that Jesus is more committed to your cause than you are. Jesus is more committed to your happiness than you are. This is clear from Israel's past, it's clear at the cross, and it's clear from our lives. Jesus is more committed to our good than we are. Jesus' words are authoritative And they are a strong foundation for us to rest in in these troubled times. And so rest in his words and know that they are 
authoritative because he is God. So he's God. And second, we see the angel say he is king. So who is it that's breaking into the world at this time? We see that he's God, but we also see that he's king, right? We sing this in so many of our Christmas songs. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Or later in that same song, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. Or if we look back in our text at Luke 1, 32 through 33, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. But again, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Jesus is king. But what difference does it make? What difference does it make that Jesus is king? And so this is what the question really is. What kind of king is he? Because, see, we're not really scared of authority. I I wouldn't venture to guess that anyone in here says we don't need government. I think everyone in here would say... We venture to guess that everyone in the room would say we need government. Why? We need government so that the world doesn't descend into chaos. And I don't know anyone in this however, I don't know anyone in this room that would say, but monarchy is the best form of government. Monarchy is the is the type of government we need, right? No, of course we don't think that. If you do think that, I would really like for you to come afterwards and tell me why you think monarchy is the best. But see, the reason is because we're not really scared of authority, but what we're scared of is absolute authority. Because in absolute that's why the, the framers of the Constitution had these checks and balances because they saw that no man is qualified to have complete authority over the lives of their citizens, right? So they had all these checks and balances, not because every citizen is qualified, but because no citizen is qualified. However, if there was a king that was completely good and completely just and completely loving towards their citizens and completely wise... Now, that would be a king worth getting behind. Now, that would surely be the best governing structure because you don't need checks and balances if you're completely wise all the time and you're completely holy all the time and you're completely just. You don't need checks and balances on your power if you're always a good ruler. And this is the king we're dealing with here. Verse 36 says, The child to be born will be called holy. He will be different than anyone who has ever been born. He will be completely perfect. But what, but what difference does his kingship make? Simply saying Jesus is king doesn't sound controversial. We, it's just something we just secondhand know. We just know, yes, Jesus is king. But if Jesus is king, this is what that means. It means that he has complete claim to authority in our lives. He has complete claim to authority in our lives. And that is controversial. That goes completely contrary to everything the world tells us about the freedom of man. Everything the world tells us about man is that we are free to determine our own destinies. And so when we say Jesus has complete claim to authority in our life, we're going against everything we've ever been taught. I used to know a guy that whenever his wife would tell him something to do, he would unwisely say back, I'm the boss of me. He would say, I'm the boss of me. And, and now I, I don't suggest you try that at home. Um... But what he's getting at is that no one gets to claim authority over my life and my actions but me. That's what he's saying when he says that. The issue with that, the issue with saying I'm the boss of me and claiming authority over our own lives is that we're not infinitely wise. And said, no, this is what the Bible says about, about our hearts, about our desires, about our wills. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or Titus 3, 3 speaks of us being enslaved to various passions and desires. The issue with us claiming authority over our own lives is we're not qualified to have authority over our own lives. When I was in China, uh, I was 
talking with a guy about this very concept, and, and he, he was agnostic, and, and, and what he would say is, he, would, he kept telling me, he's like, you just need to trust yourself better. He, he's like, you just need to trust yourself more that you're going to do the right thing and that you're going to be, uh, that you're going to make the right moral decisions. And, and I totally understand where he's coming from. I totally get what he's saying. But I also know what the Bible says about myself. I also, I, I know that Jeremiah 17, 9 says that my heart is wicked above all things. Not only that, I know the inner motivations of my heart. And I know that outside of God, all the good things I might do are tainted because I'm, I, in some way they're ultimately going to glorify myself. They're going to serve myself in some way. If I really search down outside of the Lord, the good things that I'm doing, I see that they're just simply trying to elevate myself. And, and I would venture to guess, if you would search out your own heart, that you would find that you have the same selfish, self-centered tendencies that I do, that the Bible speaks that all men do. But when we are born again, Whenever we, we come to know the Lord and we're brought into his kingdom, our hearts are regenerated, and we are able to choose what is good and holy and right. The problem is, is that sin is still a powerful foe. Our hearts are still deceitful. So how do we conquer the deceitfulness of sin? Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Jesus is the only rightful authority in our lives. And when we trust our lives to him, we are give control of our entire lives to him. And Jesus, in his goodness and in his power, as, as a good king, has entrusted the church, has entrusted the church with his authority to care for one another. Hebrews 10, 10 24-25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. He's tying good works, doing good things, serving the Lord to meeting together. And again, in Hebrews 3.13, he's saying, Exhort one another. Exhort one another as our church, because that's how we conquer the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful, and our natural tendency is to continually reassert our authority over Jesus but the church body is here to help us to repent from that. If you're neglecting to invest in your local church body, then you are neglecting a powerful ally in your, in your war against sin. If some of you guys may remember Austin Davis. Um, usually whenever I come and speak, he'll come and lead worship. And sometimes he'll come and speak, and I will not lead worship because I'm not musical at all. But he's doing an internship in Portland, Oregon with the church there. And in one of his papers on the church... He actually wrote this, and I think it ties in perfectly with what we're saying. He said, When we join the church, we're agreeing to something similar to the terms of a marriage. We're coming in to affirm and love some, someone else who loves and affirms us in return. We're committing to share everything we have and will be. As many married people have told me, each day of life together is not this glorious procession of ascending excitement and perfection. In marriage, the couple submits to love in better or worse, in sickness and health, in riches and in poverty. Yes, there is affection and love and beauty, but the vows are solemnly declared that the love will persist in ugliness, that the love will prove itself in difficulty, and this image should not be completely foreign to the regality of our lives in the local church. And this is what he says, we are agreeing to a godly love that spurs one another towards the holy. That's what it means when we join the church, when when we're meeting together and exhorting one another. We're agreeing to a godly love that spurs one another towards the holy. And he writes, we are agreeing to a love that not only endures the ugly, but but also succeeds in transforming the ugly into beauty by the grace of God. Someday, 
Christ will return for his bride. He will remove our sinfulness. He will be, we will be united with him forever. The sorrow and the anxiousness and disease and everything will, will be cast away. And he will reign forever as king. Luke one thirty three says, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And his comfort and protection and salvation will last forever. He is a good king and he will reign forever. And until that day, he has given us the church to help us along. He has given us the church to exhort us and to help us until that day. So how do we partake in this eternal joy, in this eternal life? And this, finally, he is a savior. Verse 31 says, you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Um, so there's all kinds of online communities uh, that, are, that are geared towards uh, the, the most popular baby names. And so this year, Brianna the other day was reading me one of these lists, and one of the most popular baby names for this last year was Khaleesi. Now, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the name Khaleesi, but Khaleesi is a character on Game of Thrones. She's the dragon queen, right? So, so basically, all throughout America, there's, or I guess all over the world, there's people naming their daughters, I guess maybe sons, Khaleesi, because they're hoping that their child will grow up and exhibit the qualities of Khaleesi, the dragon queen. They're hoping that they'll be a strong-willed, powerful queen of dragons. I don't know. But what I'm getting at is that they don't just simply name them Khaleesi because they think that sounds beautiful. No, you, they, you names have meanings. They're, they're going for the meaning of the name. Now, God could have let Mary name his son. God could have, Mary seems to be a faithful servant of the Lord. Joseph seems to be a man of great integrity. I think by all accounts, they would have done a great job naming Jesus. But no, but God himself dictates what Jesus' name will be. So that means that this name must have meaning. It must be important to God. It must say something about who it is that's coming into the world, right? And so here's what it is. The name Jesus transliterates to the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means Savior. Jesus' name is literally Savior. The King of the universe, the Son of God, is coming into the world and his name will be Savior. Matthew 1.21 adds to the words of the angel when he writes in his account, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So who is this coming into the world? It's a Savior. What is his purpose? What is the whole purpose of him coming into the world? Is a part of who he is, that he is coming into the world to save the world. So why do we need a Savior? Why do we even need Jesus to come into the world as Savior? And it's because we have rejected him as God and King. The reason we need a Savior is because Jesus came into the world as God, and he came into the world as King, and he has the rightful authority over our lives, and we rejected him as such. But he didn't just come into the world and God as King. No, he came into the world as Savior. But as J.D. Shaw says, the good news has to start with the bad news. So here's the bad news. This is why we need a Savior. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Moreover, Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Adam, not my brother, but the, the, the first man, Adam, as federal head, sinned, and as a result it is our very nature to sin. His sin has been transferred to us, and we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We have no ability within ourselves to make ourselves alive. Instead, we continually elevate ourselves in the place of God. Sin is not simply doing bad things. Sin is rebellion against the authority of God. We reject him as God of everything, and we reject him as king in our lives. 
So where has sin gotten us? Where has all this sin and the brokenness gotten us? And this is what Romans 1, 18 says about our situation before this God. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed, uh, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This king is holy, which means that it means that he must be just. Is that there must be punishment for rebels. And this verse shows that his wrath is against us. His wrath is against every single one of us because we have sinned. Because it is in our very nature to sin. This is our situation before that God. Wrath pointed against us. Now this is the bad news. But here's the good news. is that Jesus was not brought forth in iniquity. Jesus was not brought forth in iniquity. He is not a son of Adam. He is a son of the Most High. He is not sinful. Verse 35 says, Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. In Jesus, the God that has his wrath against us has come to the earth for us. If, we, if he was simply a perfect man, then he could just die for one other person. He could just die in place of one other person, but he's not. He's God, which means he can die in the place of all other people. Romans, uh, sorry, yeah, Romans 3, 25, uh, 23 through 25 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, that word right there, propitiation, means satisfying the wrath of God. And this verse says that Jesus was put forth as our propitiation by his blood. Through Jesus' death, the wrath of God was turned away from us, and it was turned towards Jesus. In the Old Testament, the king stood before God as a representative for all the people. And now under the new covenant, Jesus stands as our king and, and before God as our representative. So how do we receive this gift of grace? How do we receive the, the, how do we, how do we receive the propitiation by Jesus' blood? Look back at verse 25 in Romans 3. Put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Here it is. To be received by faith. Look here at Mary's response. Whenever the angel comes and he tells her this, Mary says, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord, and let it be according to your word. Now, the angel of the Lord has just come and told her that she's going to give birth to the world's God, right? This is not like any small thing. She's coming, the angel's coming saying, hey, you're going to give birth to God. More than that, when she asks, how is this even going to happen since she's a virgin, the angel says, well, it's going to be impossible by your standards, right? So, like, this, is, this has got to be absolutely terrifying for Mary, not to mention the fact that in, in this time, this, the social aspect of this is that she could be stoned to death for having a child out of wedlock. Right, like this is terrifying to be in Mary's situation. But what is her response? Her response is not one of fear. No, instead, Mary affirms that she's a servant of the Lord and that she will rest in his word. How can she do this? How? This is what my pastor back home says on his sermon on this text. He says, because the bigger the commitment someone makes to you, the more responsible you are to commit to them. Mary saw that in becoming an embryo in her womb, God was making a gigantic commitment to his people. So it's only fair, it's only rational for her to trust and follow him in return. To be covered by the saving work of Jesus on the cross, we must put our faith in him. 
We must look to Jesus and admit that we can do nothing in ourselves to save ourselves. Mary is not relying on her own strength in this situation. She's not, she's not saying when the angel comes and tells her, all right, God, I got this. Like, I'm going to do it all by myself. No, she's affirming that she's a servant despite all the questions she might have and all the fear she might have. She sees that he is committed to her cause, and in turn, she trusts him. And God coming to earth in the form of a baby, he has laid everything on the line. And he again laid everything on the line through his death on the cross. To all of the human race, he is saying, I am committed to your well-being. So what should our response be to a God that in love has died in our place? The only sane response is to be committed to him in return. Our response should become that of Mary. Our response should be, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. Jesus, in his teaching, tells us exactly what it looks like to be a servant of the Lord. He tells us exactly what it means to follow him in Luke 9, verses 23 through 24, when he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Committing to God means that we, simply, we can't just simply live however we want after that. Committing to God means that we lose our lives. Having faith in Christ's death on the cross cost you your life. At the cross, we see Jesus giving his life for us, and in return, we give our life to him. That means that we commit our desires, we commit our worries, we commit our jobs, we commit our anxiousness, whatever we may be going through, we commit that to Jesus, and we follow him and trust him. Now, this may sound scary, this may sound intimidating, but when we see that the God of the universe and the king of everything, and the loving Savior who died for us, when we see all that the angel has told Mary that he will be, when we see that this is the baby that is breaking into the universe in in Luke 1, it makes all the sense in the world. That's all I got for you today. I'm going to pray, and then Adam, I think you'll come up, right? Father, we thank you for the Christmas season. God, we thank you that you have come into the world, Father, that you have come not simply as God and not simply as king where we would be judged and we would be, uh, the wrath of God would still be on us, but God, we praise you that you have come into the world as Savior so that we might experience you more fully as God and King. Father, I pray that we will analyze our lives, that we will look into our lives and see where we have not submitted to your authority, Father. That we will rely on our fellow church members, that we will rely on our brothers and sisters in Christ to help point us toward the Holy Father. God, I thank you for this time in worship, and I praise you in your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.